Good afternoon. It's Monday, the 31st of January 2022, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. Your host today, Mike Robinson, myself, Brian Gerrish. We're delighted to be joined by David Scott and our very own Katie Joe. And we'll just say that the uh, uh, for our regular viewers, the delays that we've experienced a couple of times starting up is actually a very good sign. It's due to a lot more going on in the studio, but we apologise for the slight glitch there. Uh, I'll just say as well, we also have a slight technical problem with uh, muting mics today. So if, if David's noisy, it's, uh, it's uh, well, we'll apologise for that up front. And uh, he's already looking guilty. But anyway, let's get straight on, Brian. <laughs> well, let's do it because, of course, today is Sue Gray Day. So what better place to start? Well, maybe not with a grinning Boris Johnson. Uh, this is the Daily Mail with their little embedded loop where he's simply saying, uh, that he's uh, he sticks to what he said in the past, and you're going to have to wait and see. So he, of course, has been given the report, so there'll be plenty of time for him to go through it with his highlighting pen to decide what's too embarrassing and needs to be changed. Meanwhile, the public will have to wait for the sanitised version to come out. Perhaps I'm being too cynical, but I don't think so. So we're interested to see what's in that report in due course. Uh, right. Uh, some, well, apparently good news on the face of it, at least. Uh, the Telegraph here reporting an exclusive that there's been a U-turn on mandatory vaccination for uh, NHS and social care workers. Uh, and so what they're saying is that uh, co uh, mandatory COVID jabs for NHS and social care workers are set to be scrapped. The Telegraph can reveal after warnings of crippling staff shortages uh, if the plan went ahead. Sajid Javid uh, will today uh, meet fellow ministers on the COVID Operations Cabinet Committee to rubber stamp the decision on the about turn. Uh, and uh, they're going on to say, quote, uh, the, Royal College of, sorry, the Royal College of Nursing, uh, the Royal College of Midwives, the Royal College of GPs, all having pushed for requirement to be delayed uh, with warnings that would have catastrophic impact. So the question is, is it is it forgotten about or is it delayed? Um, and uh, uh, they're saying that last night uh, care home representatives expressed fury at the handling of the issue because what's going to happen now is that uh, under the new rules, uh, care home workers are going to be able to uh, return to the sector, as the Telegraph says, calls it. Uh, and uh, so, you know, people uh, reapplying for their jobs. Uh, chaos, Mike. Absolute it's chaos. Absolute chaos. And this is an incompetence. This is planned calculated chaos by the government on the minds of an already stressed uh, public. So this is absolutely deliberate, as we'll see a little bit later in the news. Of course, they're very happy that those nurses and doctors are going to be leaving the NHS. Except they're maybe not. So we'll see. Well, let's have a look at what yeah. we've got. OK, uh, so uh, Sajid Javid, the uh, health secretary, uh, very excited because uh, they have officially uh, announced the, uh, they are allowing another antiviral onto the market. So our pharmaceutical defences are crucial as we learn to live with COVID-19, he says. Uh, and the UK is leading the way, especially when it comes to the use of cutting-edge antivirals. Uh, this is an important milestone as Paxlovid has been shown in clinical trials to reduce the risk of hospitalisation or death for vulnerable patients by 88%, meaning potentially thousands of lives can be saved. Uh, David, if I could just uh, welcome you onto the programme here. I think we've heard this type of narrative before, but of course he's talking here about uh, the second of the two main uh, antivirals, um, the, the Pfizer one. Um, and uh, he went on to say, by the way, just before I get your comment on this, 
uh, that uh, you know if you want to take part in the uh, in the pan uh, the panoramic study that we mentioned last week to help find effective early treatments for COVID nineteen because apparently uh, although the MHRA said that the MHRA has said that these two antivirals are perfectly safe uh, they still need to run a trial. Are we doing trials? That's good news, I suppose. Um, we're going for 100 days from uh, a new disease to having everything in place to vaccinate the world. That's the policy now. So trials seem to be something that are somewhat optional. Um, whilst it's good to see uh, it's, well, rationality well, slowly. Sorry, I was just going to say, yeah, yeah, we're doing a trial, but of course we're doing the trial after it's already uh, it's already being sent out to, to patients and it's already on the market. So, so you know, I, I understand your positivity with respect to trials there, but you know, when the trial's happening after and the product's already being given to people, uh, maybe it's not not so good. Yeah, sentence first, trial later. We 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 understand how it goes, uh, and whilst it's it's good to see some some rationality uh, slowly returning. Um, of of the of the numerous un, um, unheralded and um, unprecedented things that the government's done to us over the last two years, uh, probably the most indefensible uh, was the um, removal of people's rights to work if they hadn't been vaccinated, a, an utterly unlawful act without any shred of justification, uh, pushed through right up to the minute when they realised that eighty thousand people would leave the NHS and they weren't going to back down. And they were, the, the, the political calculation, because that's all it was, suddenly changed to, well, let's backtrack on that one. Um, so, yes, OK, this is a move towards rationality, but there is no excuse for the government ever having adopted the position that it was holding until two days ago. Uh, absolutely. Well, let's uh, come on to this then. This is the Royal Society. They published this uh, about a week ago, I think. Uh, the online information environment, understanding how the internet shapes people's engagement with scientific information. Uh, and this is uh, really fantastic stuff, uh, because what are they saying? They're talking about misinformation. They're saying that although misinformation content is prevalent online, the extent of its impact is questionable. So they start off by saying that really its impact it hasn't had much spread, uh, so we don't really need to worry about it. Keep that in mind uh, when we get onto their uh, suggestions later on. Uh, they say that the existence of echo chambers, uh, brackets where people encounter information that reinforces their own beliefs online and online and offline, is less widespread uh, than might be commonly assumed. And there is little evidence to support the filter bubble hypothesis. So again, they're downplaying this. Uh, and then they say the concept of, single, of a single anti-vax movement is misleading and does not represent the range of different reasons uh, for why some people are reluctant to be vaccinated. Those with anti-vaccination sentiments can have uh, distinct concerns, including child safety, or act out of scepticism about the evidence, but not, uh, but out of distrust uh, of governments. In addition, uh, there are various actors involved in creating and spreading anti-vaccination material. So that's that's their introduction, um, and uh, well, let's see what their suggestions are, because as you've just seen, they were downplaying uh, what they called echo chambers. They were downplaying the uh, effectiveness of misinformation, as they describe it on the internet, but their first recommendation is that as, the, uh, as part of the online harm strategy, the UK, UK government must combat misinformation, which risks societal harm as well as personalised harm, especially when it comes to healthy environment for scientific communication. So they seem to be a bit confused about whether it's significant or not. 
uh, but the recommendation is the government has to do something about it, even though it's not significant, they said. Uh, and recommendation two, uh, governments and social media platforms should not rely on content removal as a solution uh, to online scientific misinformation. So they are suggesting that uh, the, uh, content shouldn't be taken down as, as uh, a default uh, situation, but it should be challenged instead. Um, so, okay. Uh, and then recommendation three, uh, to support the UK's nascent fact-checking sector uh, program, programs which foster independence uh, and financial sustainability are necessary. So there you go. We're not doing too well today, are we? But anyway, uh, so that, that's, that's the situation. David, uh, it's not significant. Misinformation is not getting significant spread, but we've got to deal with it with, uh, with the online harms legislation and, uh, and uh, what was the other thing they said there? Oh, yes, fact checkers. Yeah. Yeah, and this, this, this completely ignores the, the, the facts of uh, most science writing is false. Science is in a crisis of lack of repeatability, excessive specialization, specialization lack of coherence, and outright fraud. Uh, the peer review process is uh, defending existing error and vested interest, and the whole thing has many, many problems to resolve. And what we need is independent voices speaking out. We don't need more and more reasons to silence people or to cast doubt on them simply because they are speaking against the mainstream. Well, David, one of the, one of the things we could come back on with that is that if, if the government was straightforward and said, well, okay, people out there are challenging what we're saying, they're challenging the information put forward, and we're inviting people to have a proper and open discussion about the data and and the policies, then we would all be doing okay. But of course, they're not going to do that when they say, uh, we'll discuss this. It's only going to be discussion with participatory organisations, um, which is going to produce the government's line. So this, this is where it's so disingenuous. Uh, let's bring uh, Sajid Javid back on screen then. Uh, here he is uh, in a second. And uh, what's he saying? I'm immensely grateful to the thousands of military personnel uh, providing crucial support to the NHS and its hardworking staff. So uh, this is uh, basically because Northern Ireland has now deployed uh, military personnel to support the NHS in that part of the country. And so they're very proud that all four uh, areas of the United Kingdom, all four nations, as they said, uh, are um, taking part in this. So 60 defence medic medics will be deployed in support of hospitals in need across Northern Ireland. Uh, and armed forces personnel are now providing support in all nations, over 1,500 personnel uh, conducting 23 tasks across the UK. Uh, and so, uh, well, that must be the entire British military, Brian. <laughs> well, don't forget, it's very, very small, despite what Boris is telling the world at the moment. So, yeah. uh, OK, and uh, well, more good news, because uh, obviously Sir Patrick Valance has done such a spectacular job uh, with uh, everything he's done the last two years that he's now being made uh, non-executive director, so, uh, so in this case, a non-executive uh, chairman uh, on the Board of Trustees of the National History Museum. Uh, so the email that went out was from uh, Dr. Douglas Gurren. Thank you very much to our viewer who uh, highlighted this for me. Uh, and it said, Dear colleagues, I'm delighted to announce that Sir Patrick Valence will succeed Lord Stephen Green as non-executive chairman of the Board of Trustees. 
Sir Patrick expects to join the board in October 2022 and to take over as chair in early 2023. The appointment was made by the Board of Trustees of the National History Museum and endorsed by the Prime Minister and the Secretary of State for Digital Culture, Media and Sport. Uh, and Sir Patrick, he says, who has been uh, the government chief scientific uh, advisor since 2017, will be well known to us all, having played a key role in the response to the coronavirus pandemic. Uh, he brings with him a wealth of experience in industry, academia and scientific communication, along with experience as a professor of medicine, uh, president of research and development at GlaxoSmithKline and chief scientific officer, uh, advisor to COP26. So that's, uh, that's good news. Is this uh, what you might describe as a bung? Um, I would have thought it uh, could be described as a bung. By, I initially thought it was good news because I thought they were going to stuff him and put him in the museum, but apparently they're not going to do that. Well, uh, but whilst uh, he gets a, uh, a little present for his uh, work, let's come back on to all things to do with the NHS and nursing. This is from the BBC website earlier today, and we've got forced vaccines, not the right policy. That's what the nursing union chief was saying, apparently. Uh, so lots of good summaries on here. We've got ministers will meet later to decide whether to end. So it's it's not set in stone. There's discussion going. Uh, but at least we've got the head of the Royal College of Nursing saying that mandatory vaccines are not the way to go. Um, but basically, there's a lot of uh, debate shown on the BBC. And this is normal, isn't it? Because one minute we think it's going to be freed up and then it's not. But I found this interesting because this is the BBC's health correspondent, Nick Triggle, why acts mandatory jabs in the NHS? And if you read down through the text on the right-hand side, um, it says um, vac vaccination against hepatitis B is a condition of employment for some staff, but that's more than 90% effective against infection and immunity lasts for years. By comparison, immunity against COVID infection after two doses has largely gone after 20 weeks. This is a bit of a change from the BBC, uh, Mike, isn't it? Well, certainly an, an acknowledgement that they were completely wrong for the last uh, year and a half. Yeah, but they've, the BBC has done no further um, in-depth analysis, but at least we got this man starting to talk about the problem. Just going to say thank you very much to Terry, who emailed us to say, have a look at the article below from practiceindex.co.uk, uh, where there's some uh, commentary from NHS providers, Chief Executive Danny Mortimer. And uh, Terry says to the UK column, his heartless, callous attitude regarding loss of staff from mandatory facts vaccine sackings indicate to us uh, all that the only one to be sacked should be him. Uh, well, what was Terry getting uh, a little bit prickly about? It was this. This is the quote. This will reduce frontline NHS staff numbers even further and lead to more gaps in capacity at a time of intense pressure and patient demand. I suspect there are lots of people who believe the NHS and government won't go through with this, that the government doesn't want to lose a single nurse or a single doctor, but the value of the vaccine far outweighs the loss of a few thousand people. Oh, so this is the heart of the matter because this is the agenda that's really inside the government. And uh, at the same time as this is going on, uh, GPs are also being replaced by fast track, non-medically specialized graduates. So here's the Express saying that we're hiring thousands of nurses from abroad. So people say, well, it's all set in stone. They're going to backtrack. No, they're not necessarily because they're recruiting overseas. 
and GPs have been telling us about these so-called associate physicians, somebody who could have a degree in maths. They get a little bit of medicine and then being brought in to act as what the properly trained GPs are calling noctors. So we just put the two together. So you're breaking down the NHS from within by recruiting. And I'm saying this is cynical because, of course, the government doesn't care about the people it's recruiting. But in general, unqualified, inexperienced and low wage nurses to replace the fully qualified staff they're kicking out. So pretty despicable stuff. But I think we can see what's happening when we look at the pieces on the board. So if the NHS staff are protesting in Canada, it's another group of individuals. Uh, it is. So let's welcome Kitty Joe onto the programme. Uh, and uh, Hi. How are you doing? I'm very well, thank you. How are you? Good. So, so uh, tell us what you've got for us on uh, the Canada situation. Yeah, oh, it's been really incredible, actually, this weekend to, uh, to watch it and just to see the amount of people uniting together and standing up against tyranny. Um, it's, just, it's just been wonderful. So on Saturday, um, we had a freedom convoy of 50,000 plus truckers um, and about 1.4 million people made their way to Ottawa to protest against the vaccine mandates. Uh, so in order for a Canadian truck driver to cross the southern border, um, they need to be fully vaccinated. And that was uh, that went into effect in January um, on the 15th. And the same thing applies to American truckers crossing the border over to Canada. Um, unless they're vaccinated, they can't they can't cross. Um, and it's been extremely emotional, actually, to uh, to see the videos um, of these, this epic convoy and the streets lined with people in support of this freedom uh, rally. The Guinness Book of World Records uh, said it could be a record breaker actually uh, by a factor of 10. Um, trucks from America have joined in this convoy and two will hold their own uh, protest uh, that will uh, eventually make its way to DC um, in the future. So the amount of people in the organisation of these rallies is um, is phenomenal, actually, because the rallies are now going to be global. Um, it's been organised meticulously well. Every part from loo breaks to lunch breaks to fuel stops. Um, and it, it will go down in history. Um, it's, it's, it's a world, worldwide uh, revolution. Um, so before the trucks arrived in Ottawa, um, there were thousands already gathering at Parliament Hill. Um, but as you can imagine, Trudeau was nowhere to be seen. Um, I've seen some fantastic memes on this. They are hilarious. And David shared a few with me this morning. So there's that one there. <laughs> that one's absolutely brilliant. Um, and uh, so he, yeah, the last thing Trudeau said in a public statement was that there is a small fringe minority of people on their way to Ottawa. And now he is self-isolating after being exposed to COVID-19. So one of Justin's kids tested positive. And although he is absolutely fine, has no symptoms and has tested negative, he feels it's best to go into hiding. I mean, I mean, isolation. Um, yeah, nothing to do with the amount of people descending on Ottawa at all. Um, and the Freedom Convoy 2022 have a GoFundMe page and have raised 8,946,260 
dollars um, in 16 days. Uh, the GoFundMe says we are a peaceful country that has helped protect nations across the globe from tyrannical governments who oppress their people. And now it seems to be happening here. We are taking our fight to the doorsteps of our federal government and demanding that they cease all mandates against its people. So where's the money going? Well, it's going to be um, uh, dispersed to the truckers in aid uh, with the cost of the journey. So it's going to first go on fuel costs and then it will assist with food and um, shelter if needed. And this protest is supported by both the vaxxed and the unvaxxed. Um, that's really important. This is about medical freedom. Um, and I'd like to think that we have the same for the supporters here, for the NHS and the, uh, the care workers. Um, yeah, medical proce procedures should never, ever be mandatory. Yes. Um, Okay, I think we should just mention the elephant. We brought him in briefly there. Oh, well, that's for David. And oh, so, yeah, oh, okay. that's brilliant. Okay, okay. okay. Yes, okay. That's so, fantastic. So, David, uh, that was, so thank you very much for that, Kitty Joe. That's fantastic. David, uh, what is going on in the media then with respect to this? Well, well this, is, this is, I've got a couple of memes here to, to show how the, the sensible part of society is viewing the media's response. So you, hear, you see here, uh, firstly, the media are in the room with the elephant, and the elephant is the enormous and, and extremely uplifting um, uh, uh, Canadian truckers' convoy, and the media here are busy filming a blank wall because there's nothing to see here, and they're ignoring the elephant in the room. I thought that was quite good. Um, and uh, we've also got, on a similar vein, um, here uh, we have all these um, protesters, and they have banners saying love and united we stand and uh, say no to hate. But the media have found a neo-Nazi and, and a Ku Klux Klan member uh, and a few other extremists. And that's where all the media attention is, because that's the story that you are meant to believe that it's uh, nasty. It's, an, it's the nasty extreme far right uh, who are talking about freedom and protecting our society and not not succumbing to totalitarianism because that's apparently what the far right do. Uh, yes, so David, uh, Katie Joe saying there just a second ago that uh, uh, Trudeau had seemed to have skipped town for some reason, uh, didn't want to be there at the same time as the truckers. I'm not quite sure if he felt that he was under some kind of physical threat. Maybe he really does believe those headlines that you're talking about. But, uh, but the thing is here, uh, there, there is a little bit of video doing the rounds um, from Klaus Schwab talking about people like Trudeau and certainly mentioning Trudeau, Trudeau's name. Uh, just uh, tell us about this video before we see it. Well, this, this indicates just the nature of the control, the internationalized control of what is apparently national governments. So this is, this is Klaus Schwab um, boasting about the reach of the World Economic Forum uh, Young Leaders um, Project. And he's talking about meeting Trudeau and his cabinet um, and the amount of reach that his organization has. And he, he actually, he kind of corrects himself, but he says, and, and so many of the people were ours, right? He actually uses the, the, the possessive pronoun at one point. Um, it's a striking piece of video. And I have to say, um, when I mention our names, like Mrs. Merkel, um, even uh, Vladimir Putin and so on, they all have been young global leaders of the World Economic Forum. Mm -hmm. 
But um, what we are very proud of now, the young generation like uh, Prime Minister Trudeau, um, President of, of uh, Argentina and so on, that we penetrate the cabinets. So yesterday I was at a, at a reception for Prime Minister Trudeau and I know that half of this cabinet or even more half of, uh, half of this cabinet are for our actually young global leaders of the world economy right. forum. And that's true in Argentina too. Wow. Yeah. Sorry. That's true in Argentina as well. It's true in Argentina and uh, it's true in France now. Mm -hmm. I'm with the president, with a young global leader. But what is important for So there you have it. Well, young global leaders, the World Economic Forum. Um, this network not only uh, is placing the, the leaders of countries all around the world, but is, is now representing the majority of the cabinet posts in some countries. It's yeah, absolutely it's astonishing. Uh, David, they're using the word penetrating there, which if, if we take that, what do they actually mean? So they recognise that they've got to... They've got to do it, insert their people inside the cabinet. This is an admission that what they're doing is, is uh, under the radar, that they're doing something which is, which is really... Conspiracy. Conspiracy. Yeah. And the casualness it, with which they're saying this and mentioning the, these, these people shows how powerful and arrogant these people really are. I mean, when, did we, when, when could we last vote for whether we wanted Schwab involved in producing UK politics, uh, policies. We've never had that vote. We've never had that discussion in Parliament. And I dare say that is exactly true in Canada as well. Exactly so. So this is, this is where the power lies. It's not where the mainstream media are suggesting the power lies. Um, I, I told Mike about this earlier on, uh, about what the mainstream media in Canada were suggesting was behind the, uh, the, the trucker protest. And it went quiet. And I was wondering why he wasn't saying anything. He was actually helpless with laughter. He could barely breathe. Um, so so let's, let's just bring that straight on then. Let's bring that straight on. We've got on. a little For, video. Well, before we see the video, let's just see the, uh, the True North report on this. Um, so here it is. Uh, CBC anchor invents conspiracy about Russia orchestrating Freedom Convoy. I'm just going to read a little bit of this because it, it is uh, interesting. Out of thin air, they say, without a single shred of evidence, a CBC anchor on power and politics, that's a program on CBC, suggested on Friday that Russia had played a role in planning and orchestrating the Truckers for Freedom Convoy. Uh, Nick uh, Cuxel made the outlandish claim while interviewing Liberal Public Safety Minister Marco Mendicino. So let's just uh, have a look at that then. I do ask that because, uh, you know, given Canada's support of Ukraine in this current crisis with Russia, it, I don't know if it's far-fetched to ask, but, but there is concern that Russian actors could be continuing to fuel things uh, as, this, as this protest grows, but perhaps even instigating it from, from the outset. Well, again, I'm going to defer to uh, our uh, partners in the public safety, the uh, trained of, uh, officials and experts in that area. So, you know, uh, OK, not laughing quite as hard now, David, because I've, I've settled down from that. But but I have to admit, I was in stitches uh, because how far oh. is this? 
how far and how ridiculous is this Russian narrative going to go? Well, that, that got Katie Jo, I was seeing on another camera, she was chortling away to that as well. The idea that we've got 1.4 million Canadians, 50,000 uh, hardworking, um, you know, working class truckers right, who, who, are, who are now unable to conduct uh, their, their, their lawful business in a country they regard as free without succumbing, submitting to compulsory medication of something they know to be dangerous. But it's the Russians. Right? It's somehow Russian influence. It is, it is quite funny. I mean, it, it, it really is. Yes. Well, was it Russian influence under Schwab? Because Schwab did give Putin a mention in that little uh, prompt for world leaders. He did. I believe he said he was a uh, global young leader. Um, okay. Well, we'll come back. We'll come back onto that. that. Yes. Okay. Uh, okay. If you like what the UK column does and you would like to support us, then please head over to ukcolumn.org forward slash community. There are options to help us there. Uh, your help very much appreciated. Uh, if you'd like to share our material on the various platforms as well. Um, and also a quick reminder that uh, you can support us through the UK column shop as well, um, which brings us to the independent. Brian. Well, it does. And thank you very much to the uh, viewer that pointed this one out. We've been getting a lot of uh, information from people who are long, very long term supporters of various football teams. And what they're basically saying is that they have never, ever before seen so many people um, dropping in the uh, stadium audience of the games, uh, requiring often a pause in play as the medical teams come in to deal with it. So this is the independent commenting here, and it says Fuller, uh, Fulham, Oldham, Wickham and Bradford all saw their home matches halted due to medical incidents in the crowd on Saturday afternoon. Championship leaders Fulham had their game against Blackpool stopped after 16 minutes due to an emergency in the Hamsmith end. And we just repeat this message that we've got a lot of people now, um, some of them football fans for 30 plus years, have said they have never, ever seen the frequency that we've now got uh, medical emergencies amongst the, uh, amongst the crowd. So, uh, you know, what's, what's taking place here? Something is happening to these people. Yes, for sure. Now, David, let's move uh, on to Ukraine then. And, uh, well, I think it was last week we mentioned that Liz Truss had been in Australia. Now, she's been getting into a little bit of trouble for travelling to Australia because she took the... Uh, the British equivalent of Air Force One to get there, and it cost about half a half a. I think they said something like five hundred thousand pounds to uh, to get there and back, uh, rather than taking a commercial flight. Um, so, uh, so she'd been getting a bit of trouble for that. But nonetheless, while she was in Australia, as we mentioned, she was speaking at the Lowy Institute. But one of the things we missed during that speech, or I missed rather, because you didn't miss it, you've picked it up, uh, was was this. So. Uh, What's, she tweet, what's being tweeted out here by the Council on Geostrategy? Well, I missed it first time as well, right? So, it, Council on Geostrategy is saying, speaking at the Lowly Institute, uh, UK Foreign Secretary Liz Truss outlined the formation of a new trilateral between Poland, U, uh, the, UK, the UK, and the Ukraine. Um, so, this is a, a trilateral defence agreement between Poland, Ukraine, and herself. And that seemed like big news to me. And I wondered how I'd missed it because I, I glanced through the speech and I hadn't picked it up. Uh, we'll explain exactly why both of us missed that in a moment. 
Um, the Council on Geostrategy here, however, provided a very helpful map to, um, to explain what's going on here. So this, this shows strategic support coming from Britain to both Poland and the Ukraine. It shows a ring of British bases, military facilities or presence, including uh, down in Romania on the Black Sea coast. Um, that may have, many people may have missed the, the fact that the British military is in there, um, but we are. Um, and this is all shown as, as, as some sort of barrier against uh, Russia and Belarus. Um, and the only other thing marked on the map is the um, royal route to uh, the Far East via, this, via Suez Canal. Um, so it's shown in, in geopolitical and strategic terms there. Um, quick note on who the Council on Geostrategy are. Um, we might get some more of this in extra time, but their mission, uh, they're a non-profit organisation, um, founded in 2021. They're very, very new, but all of a sudden they're basically announcing government policy, so they're very well connected. Um, and they're talking about um, focusing on international environment, uh, both in geopolitical competition and the environmental crisis. So they're very up to, up to speed on everything. Uh, and they do seem to have the ear of um, many people in government. And part of the reason is uh, they have on their advisory council someone you may know, gentlemen, the Right Honourable Tobias Elwood MP. Doesn't, isn't he a busy boy? He gets everywhere these days. Well, that's what happens when you um, work for now, 77 Brigade. <laughs> well, there you go. Now, this um, <coughs> Britain-Ukraine-Polish pact um, is not a new uh, concept. I, I, I went looking for references to it. I couldn't find anything uh, about the current um, announcement, really, other than it had been made. There was no detail available. But here's, a, here's an article in The Independent, unbelievably from 1996. Britain, Ukraine and Poles make a pact on defence. So this thing has been run at least twice before in the past, right? Now, back in 1996, the Independent says the, the arrangement bridges the gap between Poland, uh, then a leading candidate for NATO membership, and the Ukraine, which is, has until recently opposed the expansion of NATO and is unlikely to join. That was 1996. Things obviously move on. Uh, and it gives Britain a foothold in Eastern Europe. Why we would want a foothold in Eastern Europe, no one has yet explained to me. Now, Back to Liz Truss and her speech at the Lowy Institute. This was what she actually said. So this is a major new tripartite alliance involving Ukraine, which is being touted as the location of the next war with Russia. Seems quite important. She said, we're also strengthening our bilateral partnership following high-level talks in London in December, and we're fostering new trilateral ties with Poland and Ukraine. That was it. That, that, that add-on half-sentence, kind of afterthought, that was all she actually said. That was announcing a new policy. So if you blinked, you missed it. Um, for any, th any sort of reasonable analysis on this, um, you have to avoid all the mainstream, I'm afraid. Uh, the best I found was on uh, antiwar.com uh, by the excellent economist David Stockman. Uh, who's, who's writing about the Ukraine pushes back against American hawks. And he goes into not only the fact that Ukraine is saying there's not going to be a war, stop beating the war drums, you're killing our economy. Um, and he goes into the history of American um, uh, 
manipulation of the political situation inside the Ukraine. But the, the, the most the key bit that gives an indication of what's really happening here is the following. Uh, he says, then there's a clincher revealed by high-level US intel source. In 2013, the late Zbigniew Grancesko Brzezinski was presented um, with a classified report on Russian advanced missiles. He freaked out and responded by conceptualizing the made in 2014 to draw Russia into a guerrilla war, then as he had done uh, with Afghanistan in the 1980s. And here we are now. It's all a matter of unfinished business. Now that makes sense to me. What's going on here? The, the, the West are trying to start a guerrilla war, a quagmire for Russia in the Ukraine. This is not in the interest of the Ukrainians. Let's not pretend it is. Right? They would have the casualties. They would have the devastated country. They would have um, areas bombed back into the dark ages. They would have all of the pain and suffering to heal and to rebuild from. Uh, this is not in the interest of the Ukrainians. Um, but it does strike me as believable that what's actually going on here is a US-led um, and more broadly Western-led attempt to uh, embroil Russia into in another uh, quagmire uh, of the type that Afghanistan proved to be. Uh, David, if I just um, come... David, if I can just come in very quickly, um, that was Liz Truss and the Lowy Institute. Was that correct? Yes. Yeah. So if, yeah. if we do a little bit of research, the, the Lowy Institute was um, uh, started in 2003 by Sir Frank Lowy, who spent 50 years with the global shopping centre company Westfield. And then he suddenly switched to national uh, the Institute of National Security Studies. Uh, where the key issue is relating to Israel's national security and Middle East affairs. So I don't know how you go from 50 years in shopping to becoming a security expert and then talking to Liz Trust. I think there's some very interesting questions to be asked. Well, Liz Trust probably hasn't got any better qualifications for the job she's doing. It seems she's to be just... a prerequisite for any of these types of jobs these days, that type of uh, experience. Sorry, David. Yeah, no, and just, just to go on, so from, from antiwar.com with its excellent analysis, it actually gives an insight of what's happening. And um, we come back to the UK media, Evening Standard here, uh, just running through the government talking points. Uh, Defence Secretary Ben Wallace, not optimistic Russian invasion can be stopped. Mr Wallace told the BBC from Germany there was still a chance the invasion could be halted, but I'm not optimistic. So there's no, there's no data, there's no analysis, there's... Uh, <laughs> Unverifiable emotion, it seems to be the entire driver of the policy. And here we've got Liz Trust tweeting out, tweeting out, we are working closely with Poland and Ukraine to strengthen security in Central Eastern Europe and deter Russian aggression. Now, that is all the information I could find on our new tripartite agreement with uh, Poland and Ukraine. Um, uh it's a tweet. And of course, David, the UK government has form on this because, because there's very, there was very little uh, coverage of the lead up to the announcement of the uh, Lancaster House treaties with France, the bilateral agreement there. There's very little announcement uh, of the Sandhurst treaties, again with France. Very little announcement in terms of the, uh, the treaties that we went into with Germany and the Netherlands uh, and Poland on its own, never mind with Ukraine. Um, so, you know, this, this, they have form on this. But look, you were talking about the fact that uh, this is not good for Ukraine. Um, 
Well, let's have a look at what the uh, Ukrainian defense minister has been saying about the situation, uh, because it's absolutely clear what he thinks, at least. Uh, the situation on the Ukrainian-Russian border at this time is no different from what it was in the spring of last year. This is what he was saying to the Ukrainian parliament on Friday. I believe it was Friday. Uh, some countries uh, measure the number of troops at a distance of up to 200 kilometers from the border of Ukraine, while others up to 400 kilometers. So he's saying here, look, this headline figure that's appearing in the media is nonsense because it depends how you count. Um, and uh, uh, then, of course, uh, we have the uh, furore that's going on in the media over the last couple of days about Russian tanks in Belarus. Uh, and so he went on to say, as for the uh, Russian troops that are doing exercises in Belarus, they look more like an occupation force and a strike group and pose more of a threat to Minsk than to Ukraine. So, OK, he's trying to drive a wedge uh, between the uh, Belarusian government and the, and the Russian government there. But he went on to say, uh, I can't say the exact amount we've received in aid but I can say it's more optimistic than the media reports. So he's acknowledging that uh, we are pushing as much in the way of uh, weaponry into Ukraine as we possibly can, because if we want them to do our fighting for us, as you've uh, suggested there, David, we've got to make sure they're well enough armed. Uh, he said the, mo the number of modern anti-tank anti weapons that our military has today uh, exceeds significantly the number of potential targets. So he's suggesting that uh, Russia couldn't possibly prov uh, provide uh, more targets than they have uh, missiles for. Uh, next week, he said, we're waiting for the next planes from the United States with military technical assistance to, to strengthen Ukraine's defense capabilities. So it's not really clear exactly uh, what he's saying there. He's certainly suggesting, that, and he certainly blamed the media 100% for pushing this, uh, this narrative. Uh, but in the beginning of that, suggesting uh, that uh, nothing has changed. And so there's, you know, what is the reason for the current rhetoric? Uh, but let's come back uh, to Twitter. Uh, and this is uh, uh, Karen uh, uh, Knessel. I'm not sure how to pronounce her name. She's a former foreign minister in Sweden uh, and uh, doing a couple of different interviews on RT over the last uh, couple of days. So this was on the 27th of January. Uh, NATO expansion was a big mistake. Uh, and uh, sorry, did I say Sweden? I meant Austria. Uh, Austrian foreign minister, former. Uh, and that's in English. But then she uh, was doing a similar one on RT Germany. Uh, and well, this is what she had to say on the uh, German version. The Ukraine threat is a picture that emerges, but does not quite correspond to reality. It is a reality that the media have manufactured. But this was uh, what I thought was particularly interesting because she's laying the blame firmly at the UK's door. Uh, she's saying the British in particular are jumping into the breach, so to speak. Uh, I want to be more papal than the Pope. Um, so I don't know what your thoughts are on that briefly, David. This is um, Ben Wallace's um, and um, before him, the Integrity Initiative's policy. This is hybrid warfare. This is the fusion process. This is everything is weaponized. Um, this is the policy uh, that rules in London and in Washington. Right, because if you listen to the American senior naval officers talking about grand strategy, it's the same words. Right, it's it's just with a slightly different accent. Uh, so this strategy, this idea, has taken over in at least um, at least Britain and America. I suspect it goes a good deal further than that as well. Uh, and uh, she's questioning its validity, its rationality, and its wisdom. And so are we.
Yes, and okay, let's uh, move back to Ukraine then. And uh, the leader of the opposition platform for life party, uh, I'm not even going to try to pronounce Victor's name here, but uh, Ukraine should become a bridge between Russia and the West is what he's arguing between the West and the countries of Asia Pacific region. Tensions are mounting over Russian troops allegedly planning to invade Iran, excuse, uh, sorry, Ukraine. Uh, excuse me, but if the issue exists, it's it's in the imagination of Zelensky and his circle. Uh, if it is as dangerous as they're describing to our fellow citizens, then they should do something. I personally don't believe there will be an invasion. Uh, but as you're pointing out with uh, Ben Wallace, um, you come back to the UK and here's Liz Truss published in The Telegraph, her article, We Must Face Down the Clear and Present Threat Posed by Russia. So let's just have a look at what she was saying. Moscow's campaign against Ukraine and fellow democracies is undermining the very foundation of European security. So it's vital we face down the clear and present threat posed by Russia. The Prime Minister will spearhead diplomatic efforts by talking to President Putin and traveling to the region in the coming days. Uh, tomorrow, the UK will join talks at the UN Security Council to apply pressure on Russia to pursue the path of diplomacy. I will be flying out to Moscow within the next fortnight. Uh, this malign activity, the Russians that is, goes beyond the borders of Ukraine. Russian forces are continuing to arrive in Belarus for a so-called joint exercise close to NATO's borders. Since when did NATO have borders, Brian? Well, it's just, I am now laughing. My, it is so difficult to report this because it's such a web of uh, misinformation, disinformation, lies, spin and propaganda. Well, it, gets be it gets better. <laughs> Here we go. This is why we're reinforcing our diplomatic er efforts with deterrence. Now, I said this before, and I'm going to say it again. Think about the words there. We're reinforcing our diplomatic efforts with deterrence. So this is the ballot box and the bomb policy. This is what the IRA did. And Britain is behaving like a terrorist organization yeah. taking this approach. Um, so so that that is the point. We are offering NATO additional fast jets, uh, warships and military specialists. We'll come on to that in a second. Uh, the ball is in Russia's court. I will continue to make the case with our allies and directly to Moscow for a diplomatic solution, but I'm ready to take the necessary steps to spell out the consequences of continuing belligerence. This is laughable that this woman should put herself forward to, to say this because, you know, clearly she is one of the ace puppets and uh, has been briefed to produce uh, this rhetoric. Yes. So let's see what Boris is talking about then. He's talking about a package uh, that's going to be sent, that's going to send a clear message to the Kremlin. We will not tolerate their destabilizing activity. We will also stand with our NATO, sorry, we'll always stand with our NATO allies in the face of Russian hostility. So what are they talking about? They're sending or they're going potentially, maybe, perhaps considering sending uh, a, an offer to NATO. Uh, and that means that the UK will prepare to stand up armed forces to protect its uh, NATO allies. Uh, so the UK is considering options to double troop numbers and send defensive weapons to Estonia. Fast jets, warships and military specialists could be sent to protect NATO allies. Um, and uh, so that's very exciting. He went on to say, uh, if President Putin chooses a path of bloodshed and destruction, it will be a tragedy for Europe. Ukraine must be uh, free to choose its own future. Uh, I have ordered our armed forces to, pre to prepare to deploy across Europe next week, ensuring we're able to support our NATO allies uh, on land, at sea and in the air. And in order to prepare for that, tomorrow, the wonderful Admiral Tony Radican 
the current chief of the defence staff will be briefing the cabinet. Well, no uh, doubt he'll have his crayons with him, uh, Mike, for adding some more colours on that map that he whacks so lyrical about. Yes, but uh, just so as, uh, everybody knows what is going on, uh, Operation Orbital um, is part of this plan for Boris. Um, and of course, we have been in the Ukraine for quite a number of years uh, talking, uh, or sorry, training Ukrainian armed forces, making sure that they're prepared for whatever it is that we're trying to get them into. Yeah. Yes. Well, I'm going to say I came into this. David. Oh, just, be just before we leave the whole um, Ben Loss and Liz Truss um, I, I, and Boris situation, um, we started off on this talking about the Council on Jeans strategy, Tobias Elwood is on their advisory board. Another man who is Andrew Lambert, the excellent military historian, and he's been writing a lot, uh, including very recently, about um, how things should be done. And he, he's, his example of, of, of a really well-conducted geostrategy was the Seven Years' War. Um, and he talked about how the, the, the Navy and the Army were both involved in a coherent strategy led on a strategic level by an extremely astute leader within the government namely Pitt the Elder. Do you think that Liz Truss or Boris is of the quality of Pitt the Elder? Do you expect us to answer because, that question? Because, because the point of Andrew Lambert's scholarship is that's the critical bit. You can't develop a, a geostrategy that's worth anything unless you have the appropriate leadership at the political level. Otherwise, it ends... It, it fragments and ends up being led down various rabbit holes by people within the services who have got their own particular viewpoints that miss the big picture. Yes. And of course, a lot of those viewpoints, uh, David, come from the think tanks that are controlled by individuals like Schwab, who are totally unaccountable to the British public. But let's bring bonkers Boris back on screen. Um, I came into this uh, discussion while having a look at what the BBC was saying. So this is a headline here going back for the 25th of January, but it's still pertinent. Fighting talk. Boris Johnson vows to send British troops to defend Ukraine if Russia dares invade. And then there was this quote, which I think is the most offensive thing I think I could think of to say to the Russians. So Boris said any incursion into Ukraine will spark the worst bloodshed in Europe since World War II, and many Russian mothers' sons will not be coming home. This is Boris Johnson speaking to a nation that suffered horrific casualties, casualties on a scale that most people in the Western world have no concept of. Um, but if it's not the Russian casualties, um, let's have a look at this headline. Uh, the BBC, why Germany isn't sending weapons to Ukraine. And their opening statement is because the Russians suffered 30,000 casualties in the final battle for Berlin at the Zilu Heights. So this was the very end of the war when the Russians had fought their way back through and into Germany and needed to scale the Zilu Heights to take Berlin. Um, 30,000 casualties, this was nothing on the scale that they'd gone through. But from the German point of view, which uh, the BBC failed to mention, German war dead on the Russian front are estimated between 3 million and 6.9 million men. The 6.9 is the very top figure, which comes, I believe, from Russian sources. But about 5 million 
is the accepted figure. The BBC does not talk about the scale of warfare which affected both the Germans and the Russians. Instead, they cynically say, well, the trouble with Germany is it's a country of pacifists. This is really despicable stuff for the BBC. And then they quote some interesting people. This man gets a, a mention, Thomas Klein Brockhoff. Um, Germany has a long-standing policy of restraint when it comes to military conflict of all sorts, um, of all sorts, and weapons export is seen as fueling conflict rather than reducing conflict. Now, the BBC did declare that this man is from the, the German Marshall Fund, but interesting why the BBC had to go to the German Marshall Fund for comment and uh, not to members of the community in Russia, but we'll have a look at that in just a second. Uh, the gentleman went on to say this long-standing policy says that Germany does not export arms into conflict zones. Uh, Germany has departed from that principle to arm Peshmerga fighters battling ISIS in northern Iraq. But the situation in Ukraine is different. The reason is history, the Nazi killings of millions of people in Ukraine and Russia to export arms into the bloodlands that Germany helped create to supply one part of the bloodlands with arms against the other part of the bloodlands is anathema in the German political debate. So pretty strong words. Uh, my only comment is, why is it that the BBC chooses the German Marshall Fund? And if you don't know what that is, go and have a look at their website. Here's the vice president uh, on the screen. But if we go into the types of people involved in this organization, which is supposedly to build a bridge between America and Germany, if we just let it run through, we're into bankers and hedge fund and financial people. So am I being cynical if I say if there was a war, maybe some of these people could make a profit? Maybe that's a bit unfair, but uh, we go on. We've got more bankers, Goldman Sachs down in the bottom left, and we've got capitalists. And uh, all of this is supposedly for the good of Europe. But uh, my main point is Boris talking about deaths of uh, Russian sons uh, when he clearly has no concept of the scale of suffering of both the Russians and the Germans on the Eastern Front. OK, let's move on to another policy agenda then and uh, Green New Deal. And David, I just wanted to get briefly your thoughts on this because Bloomberg Green here with the headline, the cost to reach net zero by 2050 is actually a bargain. A multi-trillion dollar global investment seems massive, uh, but the closer the look you look, the smaller the numbers become. So remember, this uh, is the policy that Mark Carney uh, has introduced, basically saying that, you know, we're going to take money away from from non-green investments and put them into green investments instead. So uh, Bloomberg Green, is uh, th this report is about a McKinsey uh, report uh, saying that the green trans transition needs uh, to have $9.2 trillion of investment a year from now until 2015. That's a total of $275 trillion. Uh, but don't worry, that's only uh, small numbers because the closer you look, the numbers become smaller. Um, so some of this money is going to come, according to this report, from disinvestment from sectors uh, in the carbon economy. Um, so what they're saying is $1 trillion could come from the $3.7 trillion already invested in what they call high emission activities. Uh, and that would be on top of the $2 trillion already invested in clean technology, in inverted commas. Uh, but uh, they say that when, if you take that $1 trillion and add it to the $2 trillion, that gets you $3.5 trillion per year. So... 
So clearly, you know, there's no problem there with the maths. 9.2 trillion a year is, is close on 12% of the entire world economy, of everything. So we're going to take that out of the world economy and we're going to, we're going to put it into green stuff. Yeah, we're going to divert and it. And we're going to divert it. So 11, 12% of the world economy is going to get diverted. I, and, and that's a bargain. That's, that's beyond anything anyone has ever contemplated doing in the history of mankind. And, David, and let's... nobody, nobody could, could knows the dislocation that that's going to cause and the impoverishment that that's going to cause. They'll never know. And let's remind our audience that, of course, those key decisions are going to be taken at the level of the Bank of International Settlements with its control of the international uh, banking cartel. And these are all people completely unaccountable in making their decisions. So we need to come and focus on the power of the bankers who, at the end of the day, are simply a private business handling these trillions. OK, now let's just very, very briefly remind everybody what happened at the end of last year. I think this was September time. Uh, we started seeing headlines like this. Uh, chicken prices under pressure from carbon dioxide crisis. Barbecue squeeze as CO2 shortages hit meat supplies. CO2 shortage could happen again. Uh, and here's Gas World. UK CO2 shortage shows signs of easing within weeks. Well, it didn't really. Uh, and then we had uh, the grocer here. Poultry, poultry sector warns of new CO2 crisis with supplies on a knife edge. And what was this all about? Well, basically, because of the, the uh, obscene rise in gas prices, uh, this company, uh, CF Europe, uh, was saying that they were going to shut down its UK operations and therefore not only were farmers not going to get their, uh, their nitrogen-based uh, fertilisers, but uh, there'd be no CO2 for the, for the food market. Uh, but, uh, that, so that was their announcement of a halt uh, in operations at UK facilities. So the government uh, decided to ride to the rescue. Uh, and this was, as I say, in September, October time, Quasi Quartang here, the business secretary saying, this agreement will ensure that many critical industries that rely on a stable supply of CO2 have the resources they require to avoid disruption. And what was, did the government do? They stepped in uh, and agreed to cover the operating costs of this company uh, for the duration. Well, that uh, uh, agreement has come to an end and there are heavy negotiations going on uh, to take it a step forward. So CF industry supplies 60% of the world's, uh, of the UK's food grade CO2, uh, and they are continuing to negotiate with their gas customers to extend CO2 offtake and pricing agreements. Uh, but then the government is now working closely uh, to, uh, to, to see whether this deal can be uh, extended or not. But David, uh, very, very briefly, um, this, is, this was an unprecedented deal at the time that the government would step in and agree to cover the operating costs of, of a, a processing plant to produce CO2. Um, uh, it's, it's not normal economic policy. No, no. And the reason it was necessary is because the, the economy is, is very integrated and there's lots of unintended consequences when you do stupid things and intervene in the markets. And, and the, 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 um, the result of government policy, which had caused this this huge spike in gas prices um, caused other industries to shut down and and um, and sort of secondary products, byproducts of those industries to cease. And that starved other industries of essential raw materials. 
This is the nature of the economy. It's heavily integrated. It's very, very complicated. Um, and it's not amenable to central control. So they're now trying to fix a problem. And of course, they'll just create more as they go along. Uh, and the situation will continue to be chaotic and uh, crisis ridden. Uh, yes, indeed. OK, well, let's uh, get back to uh, Kitty Joe then. And Joe Rogan, Kitty Joe and uh, Spotify, this argument continues. Yeah, yeah, the latest war on free speech. Um, we have Neil Young uh, taking a stand against the Joe Rogan experience, which is hosted on Spotify. Um, Spotify have a $100 million deal with Rogan to exclusively host his podcast. It's one of the wide, uh, most widely heard programs on Spotify with 11 million uh, listeners. Uh, Joe Rogan and his guests give true facts and information about the COVID-19 vaccines and encourage listeners to do their own research and actually think and explore holistic alternatives. Um, and because of this, we have Neil Young and now Joni Mitchell as well, uh, removing their music uh, unless Spotify take action on Rogan. And, and um, uh, Neil Katie Joe, I heard that uh, uh, Neil's uh, Lofgren as well. So that's a third one as well. Yeah, I was I was thinking, you know, how many are going to jump on this bandwagon actually now? Um, so in Neil Young's uh, statement on Wednesday, he said he hoped other artists would join him. Uh, I'm doing this because Spotify is spreading fake information about vaccines. And Joni Mitchell's statement on Friday uh, reads, I've decided to remove all my music from Spotify. Irresponsible people are spreading lies that are costing people their lives. Well, I could quite easily say the same for the mainstream media. Um, she says she stands in solidarity with Neil Young and the global scientific and medical communities on this issue. Um, yeah, I mean, I've, I've, I think I've given you a slide there of one of my favourite quotes from uh, Frederick, Frederick Douglass. Um, to suppress free speech is a double wrong. It violates the rights of the hearer as well as those of the listener. And surely it's up to the listener, really, whether they want to listen to what someone's saying or not, you know. Um, but what I didn't know is that apparently Spotify have already deleted um, controversial episodes of the um, Joe Rogan experience before. Um, according to Digital Music News, as many as 42 interviews with a variety of controversial characters have been removed. Um, and when the podcast announced the partnership with, uh, with, uh, with the, when the podcaster, sorry, announced the partnership with Spotify last year, he, he wasn't that bothered. He just said, oh, you know, there are a few episodes they didn't want and he wasn't, you know, bothered about it. He was absolutely fine. So it will be really, really interesting to see now as you said there, how many artists jump on this bandwagon and whether or not Spotify and, and Joe will, you know, stand and, you know, and stand up for freedom of speech, really, um, in this um, or whether they will crumble. Uh, yes, a very good question. And I don't know, uh, I don't know if either of you uh, noticed the, uh, the further attack on Eric Clapton that, uh, that has, uh, did you see this? I know, I know of it. I don't know the details. Did, did you see that, Kitty Joe? I couldn't find anything really that new, um, no. if I'm honest. I did have a look, but I couldn't find anything brand new. Well, this was because he made statements uh, about the, uh, sorry, David, you'll have to remind me the term, the mass hypnosis, uh, um, what was the term that was used by, by uh, um, mass, Dr. Malone? Um, mass psychosis, mass psychosis, Ooh, that's gone. Yeah, I'll it's check. gone. But but anyway, it was it was related to that. Clapton had made some further comments about it, and uh, and uh, 
uh, that had uh, uh, resulted in another attack. Okay, Katie Joe, let's move on to, uh, to TikTok. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, well, as we know, the propaganda machine, the mainstream media controls pretty much everything that most people watch and read. Um, and I, I believe if you've got into the music, theatre, film industry to become famous, you're in it for the wrong reasons. Um, and as I've always said, you know, it's something that should be you should be compelled to do. It should be something that completes you. But fame and stardom have become the drive for so many people now. Um, and social media gives everyone that 15 minutes of fame that they're craving. Um, the worst of all being TikTok, the most uh, demeaning and demoralizing social media site of, site of them all. Um, the way every, nearly every female music star now dresses and performs like a cat in heat is reflected in the TikTok videos that girls are posting. Some extremely young, um, uh, girls are, you know, being sexually explicit, vulgar, and basically selling themselves just to be popular. Um, and there is a girl called Charlie de Emilio, who now is age 17. She was, she's been a TikTok celebrity since she was 15. She has more than 125 million followers. Um, and for what you might ask, well, um, for dancing sexually, posing half naked and um, lip syncing to songs. And this is what our children aspire to be now. These are their role models. Um, and with most teenagers stuck at home in their bedrooms during 2020, it was just the perfect time for these social media stars to, to make it. But TikTok is not only a vacuous cesspit that leaves people feeling empty and depressed, it's neurologically damaging and it results in extremely low attention spans. Um, it's, it, you know, it's, it's, it, it, it takes the, the dopamine um, to, you know, to adjust and it's, it's, it takes uh, people to a, a level where they, they just can't stop scrolling. Um, it's really, really quite worrying. Um, it's called um, intermittent reinforcement and it makes it incredibly addictive. Uh, but also, obviously, you've got the dark side of TikTok as well, with the um, the uh, biggest investors being the Chinese government. Um, and all of the data has to, by law, go to them. Um, the data TikTok collects from you is uh, unbelievable. Um, they know the device you're using. They know your IP um, address, your location, search history, keystrokes. Um, and I think even in, in America, they, uh, they can collect biometric information, which is your um, face and uh, voice prints. So the, the app it employs a lot of techniques to conceal all of this information. And because people is, find it so addictive, they don't bother to look at any of the, uh, any of the, um, uh, where their data is going, which is, which is really, really worrying. So they're pro programming our culture and they're seeing to it that our minds rot and it's absolutely horrifying and i just think people need to just boycott it it's uh, this you know it's such a harmful form of media um so i need people to boycott it and find original talent um artists like green tea peng who um have a purpose to their music and um, no interested in being pop stars or household names um, and artists like Kid Capici, um, a super, super talented um, band. They're a punk band and uh, they, their songs are about subjects they're really, really passionate about. Um, and I did send one of their videos to David 
um, I don't know if you've got it there, but they wrote a fantastic song called Party at Number 10, funny enough. Um, have you got it? Is, it? is it there? Have you got it? No, no, we don't have no, that, I'm no, afraid. No, I'm sorry. Oh, what a shame. Well, you can find it on YouTube. It, it's absolutely brilliant. And um, their music is just, yeah, it oozes grit and determination. And uh, during the lockdown, they actually produced their own um, debut album. So go and have a little look for it. Um, their, new sang their new single is called New England, and it's, it's wonderful. Okay, okay. Well, Katie Joe, uh, fascinating piece. And you're talking about, uh, well, you were talking initially there about uh, the attack on people's minds. So a big thank you to the UK Column viewer that sent in this email. Uh, pointing to a tweet. The tweet was by Gary Sidley, who's a psychologist, and he was asking the question, how can the British Psychological Society, the body tasked with ensuring ethical psychological practice, see nothing wrong with nudges that, deplo that deploy fear, shame and scapegoating to promote compliance with COVID-19 restrictions? And if you get into the detail of the article, which the tweet leads you through to, this is part of it. I've just taken a, a couple of uh, uh, sections out of it. But one of the quotes is a middle aged woman walking along a pavement in the afternoon sunshine sees a young family approaching and instantly becomes stricken with terror at the prospect of contracting a deadly infection. A man in a queue in a, a garage kiosk leans into the face of another and screams, you selfish idiot. Hundreds of people will die because you don't wear a mask. The aggressor is oblivious to the fact that his victim suffers a history of asthma and anxiety problems. And then we get into the meat of it. Uh, so uh, Mr. Sidley says, in an article in The Critic, I discussed the remit of the government's behavioural scientists in the Scientific Pandemic Insights Group on Behaviours, SPY-B, a subgroup of SAGE, which offers advice to the government about how to maximise the impact of its COVID communication strategy. The methods of influence recommended by the SPY-B are drawn from a range of nudges described in the Institute of Government document Mindspace, influencing behaviour through public policy, several of which primarily act on the subconscious of their targets, the British people, achieving, quote, a covert influence on their behaviour. This is very dark and dangerous stuff. And uh, he then comes into three nudges. The three nudges to evoke, evoke the most controversy um, among both psychological practitioners and the general public are the strategic use of fear, inflating perceived threat levels, shame, conflating compliance with virtue, and peer pressure portraying non-compliers as a, quote, deviant minority. This is vicious stuff by this government, and this has been going on since 2010. It goes on to say or affect ego and norms, to use the language of behavioural science. And then he is pointing at the British Psychological Society because they should be policing what the government is doing. So the BPS is the leading professional body for psychologists in the UK. And according to the website, their role is to promote excellence and ethical practice in the science, education and uh, application of the discipline. In light of this remit, I, together with 46 other psychologists and therapists, wrote a letter to the BPS on January the 6th, 2021, expressing our ethical concerns about the use of, quote, covert psychological strategies of a means of securing compliance with COVID restrictions. 
So this was the, the meat of it down here. And um, three, three areas were highlighted, uh, which we'll just bring up on screen. Recommendation of nudges, implementation, implementing potent covert psychological strategies, uh, harnessing these interventions for the purpose of achieving adherence to contentious and unevidenced restrictions that infringe basic human rights. And the, sorry, come back. The response that came back from the BPS was in July 2021. And Gary Sidley described this uh, as uh, being dis evasive, disingenuous, and wholly unconvincing. So now we've got real evidence of good professional psychologists challenging the government over their vicious use of this psychology. And of course, David, with an eye on the clock, this leads us into what we really should be allowing in a democratic society. Uh, well, indeed, and that's, that, that takes us into the next article, right? Because I have here um, a, a circular from a, a, a firm of barristers, um, 3PB barristers, um, on the subject of uh, when is belief not worthy of respect in a democratic society? And it's uh, an, a, a, an, an employment uh, appeals tribunal case that they're reporting on. Um, and the background to the case, very briefly, is the claimant um, believed that uh, biological sex is real, important, and immutable, not inflated with gender identity. She cons uh, considers that statements such, that, such as woman means adult human female or trans women are male are statements of neutral fact. Um, the claimant expressed these views uh, related to belief on Twitter, um, and subsequently her consultancy contract was not renewed, and she claimed she had been discriminated of because of her belief contrary to the Equality Act. And the defence of this was uh, that um, the belief that is not um, worthy of respect in a democratic society is not is not protected by that act. So this uh, this case got into an exploration of where that line is being drawn presently, um, and uh, the conclusion was that the the line must be extremely tightly drawn, um, um, only in cases where uh, a belief is would involve such a great grave violation of the rights of others, tantamount to destruction of those rights, would the belief not be worried worthy of respect in a democratic society. Uh, it concludes, however, it is clear from the convention case law uh, that it is as it should be. A person is free in a democratic society to hold any belief they wish, subject only to some modest objective minimum requirements. It, it is only in extreme cases involving the gravest violation of other convention rights that the belief would fail to qualify for, uh, for protection at all. In other words, you might have... Um, say, open advocacy of totalitarianism uh, may well be incompatible with democratic society, but um, almost any other belief is still a belief, as long as it's genuinely held. Um, that was quite encouraging, albeit that it is, it is it's still somewhat concerning that um, your rights to, um, uh, to your beliefs being protected are are limited in this way, and I wonder if we're going to see that line, that 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 uh, balancing point, move in years to come, because uh, that could be a threat to many 
uh, beliefs which we all hold dear now may become un unsayable uh, and unthinkable if that line is allowed to move in the future. Yes. Okay. Well, David, uh, let's uh, finish off with some final slides then. And uh, will you send us this, this meme? I like this one. This is from the Canadian trucker um, uh, uh, trucking protest. And it's, it's partly because it's a, it's a girl with a very sweet smile and she's standing there with a sign. And instead of saying three weeks to flatten the curve, it says 18 wheels to flatten the turd. The turd, I'm assuming, is Justin Trudeau. Yes. Okay. Yeah, well, that says it all. It says it all. We're going to have to end there. So we're going to um, thank everybody for joining us. Thank you, David. Thank you, Katie Joe. Um, we'd like to say if you're watching UK Column and you're not yet a subscriber, please consider subscribing to help us grow. We think this is the thing to be doing in 2022. Uh, we need to be getting more out uh, because there's so much happening. So we can only do this with the help of you, our audience. Um, if you can help, please do. Uh, back in a few minutes uh, on the main live stream for uh, some extra. Yeah, we will see you then. Thanks for joining us. Bye-bye.